Network Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Botte in Washington. Today is Thursday, March 2nd. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Nigeria's Labour Party will challenge the presidential election result in court. Here is an incoming government for the Federal Republic of Nigeria that is illegal and unconstitutional. We're submitting our case to the court of law. It is for them to show again that level of confidence. A Nigerian political scientist says the election of Bola Tinubu is the wish of the Nigerian electorate. Former Ghanaian President John Mahaman will today announce his bid for the candidacy of the National Democratic Congress Party. The World Bank says about 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa lack access to electricity. Security experts discuss rising extremist violence in Africa. Deaths linked to Islamist militants on the continent skyrocketed by nearly 50% in the last year to more than 19,000 people, much of it in the Western Sahel region, according to the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. And can artificial intelligence help solve diplomatic disputes over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam? Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Nigeria's opposition candidates for president say they will challenge the results, declaring the ruling party candidate the winner. Saturday's election was marred by technical and staff problems that saw voting delayed by a day or more at some polling stations. Timothy Obiezu speaks to political analysts about the likelihood of a new election in this report from Abuja, Nigeria. The Labour Party met with journalists and supporters Wednesday afternoon hours after the Electoral Commission declared Bola Ahmed Tinubu the candidate for the ruling All Progressives Congress Party as the winner of Saturday's election. Labour's presidential candidate Peter Obi did not attend Wednesday's meeting, but his deputy told reporters he and Obi will challenge presidential results in court. Yusuf Dati Ahmed, Labour's vice presidential candidate, also called on party members and supporters to be calm. Illegality has been performed. And as far as we're concerned, here is an incoming government for the Federal Republic of Nigeria that is illegal and unconstitutional. As far as we're concerned, it is now for the... We're submitting our case to the court, court of law. It is for them to show again that level of confidence. Another major contender in the election, the People's Democratic Party, PDP, is also challenging the results. The PDP and Labour held a joint briefing Tuesday, calling the results a sham hours before Nigeria's Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, declared Tinubu winner. Last weekend's presidential election was marked by delays and too many operational issues with the voting machines across the country, according to international observers. There were also reports of election violence, coercion and manipulation. Rosimio Lawale is a political analyst and co-founder of Youth Hub Africa. Some of the issues that we witnessed on Saturday are just plain logistic issues. INEC faced some challenges in that regard. Unfortunately, INEC overpromised but on that delivered. There were also in many places all kinds of attempts by different parties to 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 thwart the electoral process. Uh, these also casted a shadow of doubt on the electoral process. The opposition political parties want a revolt, but Alawali says that will only be possible if the evidence of manipulation presented by the parties is significant enough to have swayed the outcome. Are there infractions in this election? Yes, absolutely. 
The court is going to be looking at the evidence and saying to themselves, if we take into consideration the infraction, are they enough to perhaps change who would have won the election? If if they can prove beyond reasonable doubt that this there were widespread um, violence, there was suppression widespread, and the number of votes and number of polling units involved is enough to determine or change the fortunes of the election, then the courts perhaps are going to overrule the election. According to the official results, Tinubu grossed nearly 8.8 million votes, followed by PDP's Atiku Abubakar and Obi with about 7 million and 6 million respectively. Current President Muhammad Buhari congratulated Tinubu on Wednesday, as did regional bloc ECOWAS. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. A Nigerian political scientist says the election of Bola Ahmed Tinubu of the ruling All Progressive Congress APC party as the next president of Nigeria is the wish of the Nigerian electorate. The Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, pronounced Tinubu the winner of the February 25 elections over Atiku Abubakar and Peter Obi. Kabiru Mato is a professor of political science at the University of Abuja. He says of all Nigerian elections since 19 1999, this year was the most transparent except for transmitting the results from the polling centers to the INEC servers. Professor Mato tells me that opposition candidates can still challenge the results if they have indisputable evidence to disprove the INEC results. This is the seventh round of elections from 1999 when the country returned to civil rule. And I will say from my observations that uh, this was the most competitive of the elections uh, closely, you know, the three major candidates following one another. So in, in my view, it was uh, a merely an expression of what the majority of the Nigerian voters, uh, you know, desired. Prior to the announcement, the opposition has been raising concern about the conduct of the election. Unfortunately, that's one area that I think we're still like. The political class is not yet maturing to the extent of believing when a system is relatively transparent. Of course, James, we have improved very significantly in terms of the quality of our electoral system. The introduction of beavers, which is, uh, you know, the ICT compliant recognition of individual voters, it might be has gone a long way in removing the traditional ballot box stuffing and uh, all sorts of political rascalities that were observed during elections. This time around, the beavers function did very well. It did function very well. Technically, in the conduct of the election, the opposition parties are not uh, seemingly disputing that it was free, fair, and credible. Uh, the one of contention is the issue of transmitting results from the polling unit to the server, uploading the results to the server. And I think that was a bone of contention. Prior to the vote itself, all the presidential candidates signed some agreement. Do you think um, this will preclude them from legally challenging the results in case they would like to? Not exactly. The argument that the candidate signed was basically to ensure that there was 
free, fair, and peaceful election. They did not sign agreement to say that we will accept whatever the outcome of the elections are going to be. And it will be undemocratic to do that. And I think the opposition parties, the opposition candidates, really have, you know, all the privileges and the latitude in this world to challenge, you know, the outcome of the election if they have any spirit of fact to show that uh, there were fundamental infractions that have, in fact, altered the results that was announced by the Independent National Electoral Commission. Professor, it is undeniable that uh, Tinubu as president will face many challenges. Take, for example, the issue of the economy of Nigeria at this moment and the issue of also insecurity, Boko Haram in particular. Do you expect he will do something differently? I would say that the economic crisis that Nigeria is facing today is fundamentally a function of the global economic meltdown that we are facing at the moment. But be that as it may, uh, we have certain basic internal contradictions that tend to affect, you know, the performance of our economy. For instance, as the 10th largest producer of uh, crude oil on earth, I see no reason why we are unable to ultimately refine the millions of liters that we consume on a daily basis. And as such, that has resulted in the drifting of a lot of millions of dollars that come in from the dollar, uh, from the sale of oil to the purchase of refined petroleum products back to the country. Somebody wants that Nigeria is such a phony country. It imports what it has and it exports what it does not have. Oil is what we have in natural abundance. Of course, unemployment, you know, the mobilization of the economy itself, a huge, you know, and bulging population of over 75% of uh, Nigerians are below the age of 35. And, uh, you know, the very poor educational system that we have, a low level of infrastructure, has had very indicative impact on the performance of the Nigerian economy. Kabiru Mato is professor of political science at the University of Abuja, Nigeria. You are speaking with us from Abuja. Former Ghanaian President John Dramani Mahaman will today, Thursday, launch his campaign for the candidacy of the Opposition National Democratic Congress, the NDC party, in the 2024 presidential election. Other potential candidates are also planning to contest for the position. If Mahama is successful, it will be his fourth time to lead the NDC. He was elected president in 2012, but lost his re-election to current president Nana Akufuado. The event will take place in the Volta region of Ghana. James Gunu is the Volta region secretary of the NDC. He tells me the party needs a candidate with personality and a track record, and that former President Mahama has proven that he possesses those qualities. His Excellency John Dramani Mahama will be in the voter region to launch his flag bearership campaign. And the region is prepared to receive him. It's also an honor for the region because we have 15 regions currently and having chosen voter region for this particular launch, we see it as an honor. And we also believe that it is so significant because voter region remains the World Bank of the NDC. Secondly, voter region is also the home region of the founder of the party, the late flight lieutenant John Rawlings. So uh, the choice of voter region by Mr. Mahama to launch his campaign for the flag bearership contest is 
a welcoming one. And we hope and pray that tomorrow's program will be a very successful one. And immediately after the lunch, he'll be touring the constituencies to meet and interact with delegates who will be voting on the 13th of May this year to elect the flag bearer for the party. My understanding is that um, former President Mahamad is not the only person competing for this position. Is that correct? Yes, for now, um, he has picked his nomination form. We understand uh, Dr. Comrade Dufour, who was governor of the Bank of Ghana under Jerry Rollins, and uh, finance minister under Professor Mills, has also picked his nomination. And um, former mayor of Kumasi, Mr. Kojobunsu, but... In actual fact, uh, I strongly believe that this is one election that we are going in 2024 where we need the best material for the party as flag bearer because it's one election that can make or unmake the NDC. So it's not election that we should joke with. It's election that personality, track records, count. So with a track record of President Mahama in Ghana in terms of infrastructure development, I believe strongly that Ghanaians will consider President Mahama above any other president. So as a party, we need not to make mistakes to select any other person apart from President Mahama to lead our party as flag bearer going into the 2024 general election. James Gunu is the Volta Region Secretary of the Opposition National Democratic Congress Party of Ghana. You're speaking with me from Ghana's Volta Region. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Botti in Washington. Today is Thursday, March the 2nd. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Security experts are meeting this week in Senegal to discuss the fight against rising violent extremism in Africa, particularly in the Sahel region, where Islamist militant attacks are increasing at an alarming rate. Annika Hamishla reports from the meeting in Dakar. J'en retirerai une seule exigence, celle de faire preuve d'une profonde humilité. Days before his departure, Macron announced France would be taking on a more deferential relationship with Africa that would require France to assume a profound humility in its dealings with the continent. As part of the new strategy, French military bases in Africa will transform into military academies, while others will eventually be co-run with African partners. Two of the countries Macron plans to visit, Gabon and the Republic of Congo, are former French colonies. Mahamoudou Savadogo is a security expert with Grenada Consulting in Burkina Faso. Depuis ces derniers temps, la France fait l'objet de critiques. 
For a long time, France has been the object of criticism and rejection because its position has always been one of dominance, he says. But there is a new opportunity to be had. There are youth who have never known colonization, and there's a new paradigm that France must consider in order to improve the relationship with other states. France's military withdrawal from Africa will allow its former colonies to finally assume full statehood, he added. But as France has distanced itself from the continent, other parties have moved in. Private Russian military group Wagner has established a presence in Mali and the Central African Republic, where it has been accused of atrocities such as torture, rape, and executions. Agibouare is president of the National Human Rights Commission of Mali. He acknowledged the accusations against the Wagner group, but said it was up to the state to carry out an independent investigation to evaluate the allegations. For me, a country does not have friends. It has interests, he says. And any partner that can help us fight terrorism is encouraged. I'm not concerned about who that partner is, he says. Deaths linked to Islamist militants on the continent skyrocketed by nearly 50% in the last year to more than 19,000 people, much of it in the Western Sahel region, according to the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. Ahmed Yaqub Dabio is the president of the Center for Development and Prevention of Extremism in Chad. He said he blames France for the destabilization of Libya, which allowed extremism to filter into the Sahel in the first place. He says Wagner's arrival in Francophone Africa is the result of France's failed Africa policies. France has always supported African dictatorships. It has always turned a blind eye to human rights violations, he says. And France hasn't made the effort to radically change its policies. France would do better to support Africa via health, infrastructure, and education projects, W added. In his speech, Macron said he did not accept responsibility for the worsening security crisis in Mali and that he would not let France become a scapegoat. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. The World Bank says about 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa lack access to electricity. This translates to 48% of its population. But experts say solar mining grids can help address the energy access gap by providing power to undeserved villages and communities. VOA's Ruben Chiaman spoke with James Knuckles, a senior energy access consultant at the World Bank and one of the co-authors of a new handbook called Meaning grades for half a billion people. He began by explaining the main barriers that hinder African countries from upscaling the uptake of solar energy. So right now we found around 3,000 solar and other technology mini-grids in Africa. And one of the reasons why you don't see a massive proliferation of solar mini-grids so far is that up until recently, the cost of the different components that go into a solar mini-grid were actually fairly expensive. So the lithium-ion batteries and solar panels and electric components that go into a mini-grid, you know, they were fairly expensive up until fairly recently. And at the same time, you did not have a collection of private sector companies who were capable of building mini-grids at scale. You know, mini-grids were being built maybe one at a time in small one-off projects, or maybe you had the the national utility building a a couple of diesel-powered mini-grids in remote communities. But what you see today, Ruben, is you see the cost of mini-grid components has come way down. The cost of batteries has come down. The cost of solar panels has come down thanks to all of the grid-connected solar projects that are happening around the continent in Africa. And 
you now have a cohort of maybe 50, 60, 70 very capable private sector companies who are able to build solar mini grids at scale. Where do you see significant progress? Which African countries would you say are on the right track? It's important here to say that there are different ways you can build mini grids. We've seen some very strong national utility companies who are able to build and are very interested in hybridizing their mini grids. Several countries in the Sahel, like Mali or Niger, their utility companies have mini grids that they've built, and now they're very interested in hybridizing them, which means adding solar panels to provide more reliable electricity at lower cost. And so that's one model that we've seen is having lots of success, particularly in the Sahel. We now also see countries like Nigeria and Madagascar, which are rolling out more private sector-led programs. Nigeria, in particular, has a very successful results-based financing program called the National Electrification Program. And that has seen more than 100 mini-grids built just over the past couple of years. And I think there's something like 300 more in the pipeline. So when you can unleash the potential of these very capable private sector companies through a results-based financing program like we have in Nigeria, then you can really make significant progress in a short amount of time. What are the top three things that you would like both policymakers and consumers to know about mini-grids? On the policymaker side, it's really important to know that solar mini-grids are a true driver of rural economic development. If you want to be serious about poverty alleviation outside of the capital cities and outside of the major cities in your country, then you have to think about solar mini-grids and putting in place the policies, the regulations, and the institutional framework that can support these technologies. On the consumer side, the affordability and the quality, which means reliability of electricity that you can get from a solar mini-grid today is not the same thing as you would have gotten from a a diesel mini-grid 10 years ago. So the technology today is light years ahead of where it used to be just 10 years ago. That was James Noko, a senior energy access consultant at the World Bank and one of the co-authors of a new handbook called Mini-Grids for Half a Billion People. You are speaking with viewers Ruben Chiama. Ethiopia's hydropower dam on the Blue Nile River has angered downstream neighbors, especially Sudan, where people rely on the river for farming and other livelihoods. To reduce the risk of conflict, a group of scientists has used artificial intelligence, or AI, to show how all could benefit. But getting Ethiopia, Sudan, and Ethiopia to agree on an AI solution could prove challenging, as Henry Wilkins reports from Khartoum, Sudan. Artificial intelligence has been making headlines recently with chatbots like ChatGPT, seen here, that answer complex questions, write computer code, and even compose essays for high school and university students looking for a shortcut. But can AI also help solve diplomatic disputes? The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which sits on the Blue Nile in Ethiopia, is causing concern for its downstream neighbours, Sudan and Egypt. They say Ethiopia's control of the river's flow, which Ethiopia says is for electricity generation, could lead to water shortages and impact the livelihoods of those who rely on the river. Here in Sudan's capital Khartoum, Al-Hadi Abdel Wahab Jibril is a farmer who also runs a brick-making business by the Blue Nile. He says the changes in soil caused by the dam are affecting both of his enterprises. 
Because of the dam, the amount of silt that came along the Nile from Ethiopia has decreased by about 80%. Silt is important for soil renewal, but now we only get harmful soil that contains a high percentage of sand. Aside from the dam already having an impact for people like Jibril, relations between Sudan and Ethiopia are often fraught, with border clashes a regular occurrence. There is concern that in a wider conflict, Ethiopia could restrict the flow of water, strangling its neighbour. Earlier this year, scientists published a paper in the journal Nature, which offers a solution, however, AI modelling. With the help of AI, they've shown that if managed correctly, all three countries can benefit from the dam and put an end to the diplomatic dispute that has simmered since construction of the dam began. And Wilkins for VOA News, Khartoum, Sudan. And that's it for this Thursday, March 2nd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guests this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Party in Washington saying, have a great day and be safe whatever you do.